You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedian with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas here for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined today by my two simply lovely and scintillatingly brilliant uh, co-hosts, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. I think you guys just like me introducing you because you always giggle whenever we're... I know, you made me giggle. (laughs) I've missed that giggle the last couple of weeks because we haven't recorded together. I know, it's kind of sad. I miss you guys when I don't get to see you all the time. For our listeners, I think this provides us as much therapy (laughs) as we're offering to y'all. Like we have so much fun talking to each other. (laughs) We really do. You know, we have really developed quite the friendship, I think, over the last 18 months or so. It's been Mm -hmm. great. I've enjoyed it. It's awesome. So I have a completely random question for you um, that that gets filed under the things that if we all worked in the same office, we would probably know about each other. But because we all live, you know, hundreds of miles away from each other, we don't know. Thousands of miles away from each other. <laughs> but we're close together in Zoom, though, right? We are. We are close together in Zoom. We're Zoom friends. My Zoom screen is one millimeter from both of yours. I'm super close to you both. <laughs> So what snack or drink or whatever is the one that you have stored in your office desk or is the one that you live for when you get home? Like the thing that you get into, you know, the, like the two to three o'clock office hour where you're still, you're, it's too far past lunch. You're not close enough to going home yet. You're still in the thick of everything. What gets you through your day? That is the tiny little nothing thing that anyone else would just overlook and go whatever. But you're like, I live for this. So Carrie, because we do know each other so well, I'll have to say Carrie got me this really nice box of chocolates over Christmas. It's really fancy. It's Ethel M's chocolates from (gasps) Las Vegas. It is a Vegas company. And I laugh to myself because I'm like, oh, she really does know me. She really does know about me because it has like peanut butter chocolates and coffee chocolates and chocolate chocolates. So the answer to your question is, I try and stay fit. I try and exercise most days. I try not to eat a lot of stuff to excess. The one thing I'm pretty good about, I'm disciplined about candy. I love chocolate, but I'm pretty disciplined about it. So every day when I go to work for lunch, I have to have my usual salad and and. But every day I take one little square of chocolate, like, and up until Christmas time, it was like, you know, like maybe one Reese's cup or, or one, you know, like just square of dark chocolate. But now, now it carries giving me this great chocolate. That's my little square to get me through at the three o'clock, you know, lull. <laughs> That's cool. I usually do fine, like going through my day. It's the, I finish up and then I have to go to the grocery store And then I have to get home after the grocery store. And then I'm hangry. Yes. (laughs) Hangry is not good. But like my family knows you keep me fed and you make sure I get sleep. 
because either one of those, it's not a good combination. Me too. And so what I have found is that if I get a Hershey bar with almonds, because I am a true believer that like chocolate and nuts were like created to be together. (laughs) They're like the perfect combination. It's kind of like I'm a Coca-Cola fan and I don't drink much Coca-Cola, but I have a little bit every day because to me, it's the perfect balance between sugar and caffeine. And so if I'm like hitting that like low point and I get the Hershey bar with almonds and I can eat it between the grocery store and home, I can actually fix dinner and like be the person I need to be at home. (laughs) So to be clear, Susan, you're talking like a whole Hershey's bar with almonds. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So if our listeners could see Susan, she's about like this big around and I'm making a little tiny circle with my hands. If I ate a whole Hershey's bar, it's not every day. It's not every day. No, no. But it's the, like, I have to go to the grocery store and I really don't want to. And then I, you know, it's been a long day and it's just like, if I don't do something, I'm not going to be a pleasant person. And that's not fair to all the people in my house because I've been a pleasant person all day long and I need to balance out that wealth. Yeah. It's amazing what a Hershey bar with almonds can do for you. Yeah, that sounds like a good good treat to me. What about you, Carrie? So one of my nurses has a happiness basket that is filled with whatever the, the chocolates du jour are. And recently someone over the holidays had sent a set of caramels that are just the right amount of salt and chewy and melt in your mouth delicious. And so I don't go back there very often anymore because I'm trying to eat healthy and I'm trying to lose weight and get myself into all the things that I tell my patients to do. You've lost a lot of weight, right? I have. I yeah. have. I mean, I'm down at least 35, 40 pounds at this point, but but have have a ways to go. So more recently it's been hint water because there's no calories in it. And it's got a little bit of a flavor. I love hints. I love hints. And then, and the cherry flavor is the best one. The reason she thinks it's the best one is it tastes like liquid cherry jello. (laughs) So I don't think it's liquid cherry jello. I think it tastes appropriately like fake cherry, but not so fake as to be nauseating. It makes me feel like I'm having just a tiny bit of candy, even though I'm not. And the other thing is Altoids has these pink sort of strawberry-ish mints that it's not really mint and it's not really strawberry, but that fills a very small void that I would otherwise love to fill with a very large candy bar that I know that I cannot because unlike Abby, I have the self-control of a drunken gnat when it comes to chocolate. <laughs> like I can say no to wine. I can say no to grease and burgers and fries and all those things, yeah, but you get candy or sweets or cakes and I'm like, I'm, I'm a goner. Hmm, interesting. Good to know. So we all are kind of similar actually. Yeah. All have sweet tooth. So what kind of questions do we have today, Miss Susan? Okay. We're going to do two questions. So the first one is, hi docs. I've been diagnosed with unexplained infertility from two separate fertility clinics. I did four IUIs with letrozole, three with gonadotropins. All were unsuccessful. Now at the new clinic, I'm going right to IVF. I was supposed to start last month, but during my day three ultrasound blood work, my estrogen level was approximately a thousand. And I had two cysts, one that was 22 millimeters and thought to be an unovulated follicle. So essentially it looked like I was ovulating during my period. Bleeding continued for a full seven days. I waited to see my hormones have leveled out so I can start IVF. 
what do you think is happening to my body? I'm 33 years old. AMH is 1.54. And my husband and I have been trying for two years. He has no abnormalities and all my tests, uterine biopsy, sono, blood work during my initial consultation were normal. What would you suggest to remedy this? What are my chances of conceiving through IVF? Thanks. So I think the cyst thing probably is just, I don't know if you just came off an FSH cycle, but you know, sometimes you have cysts that are left over. And and sometimes I had a patient like that this week who she had a weird ovulation and we didn't expect it. And I think sometimes just when you're on fertility medicine, sometimes it just kind of can get your body kind of out of whack a little bit. I think once you stop the medicines and give yourself a break for a month or two or whatever, those cysts go away and things get back to normal again. As far as advice, I would say, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, two different fertility clinics have diagnosed you with unexplained infertility. So I don't know that any one of the three of us could figure out what you have over probably what they've done. And this goes back to something Carrie always says, you know, you don't want a treatment, you want a baby. And the end result is you want a baby. And if you want a baby at this point, I think the quickest route to pregnancy would be to think about doing in vitro fertilization. I mean, you've done letrozole cycles. I, mean, I think you said you've done FSH cycles. Yeah. So really the only thing left anyway is to do IVF. It's the quickest route to pregnancy and it's most successful. And I think you've been at it for a while. And I think, you know, I don't remember, I don't think you told us your age, but 33, I think. So you're still young. So that's good. So I think you do great with IVF. I think you'd get a lot of eggs and just a lot of the steps would be kind of taken care of by doing IVF for the step of fertilization and, you know, growth of your embryos, we'd be able to see and really pick the best embryo to put back in you. So I think that's kind of your next step. For anybody who's listening, who's my patients, and if you've had a cyst, I'm sure I've told you this, but whenever I have patients who have cysts at the beginning of cycles, what I like to reiterate is that cysts are essentially follicles that didn't get the message to go away. It is not a bad omen. (laughs) It is prognostically really inconsequential. It's just that we are needing to dot our I's and cross our T's and make sure that everything is absolutely perfect. And if you consider that the average woman has two irregular cycles a year. That means the average woman has two times a year. She probably has a functional ovarian cyst that is messing something up. And most of these times it goes away on its own. We don't really have to do much to it. And so it takes a little patience because we know you wanted to get pregnant yesterday. And so we're not doing it to be mean or anything like that. It's just you're investing not only a lot financially, but a lot emotionally and physically into doing this IVF cycle. And we want everything to be absolutely perfect for you. Agreed. Do we have any other questions that we can do real quick? Yeah, let's do one more. Hi, love your podcast so much. I listen religiously both for the laughs and for the information. That's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I hope we give some laughs. (laughs) My question for your episode is about chronic endometritis. If you have endometritis that has returned at least once, how do you move on with trying to conceive without taking a break every other month to have another endometrial biopsy done? I had one done in 2018 that showed endometritis and one this year that confirmed it also. I've had two recent recurrent miscarriages with no living children. How can I be sure moving forward that I'm not putting a healthy baby into my body if it's riddled with endometritis? Obviously, I'm assuming endometritis has something to do with my losses as their microarrays were normal. And we've had a full gambit RPL testing with normal results. Thank you so much. So that's a tough one because when you're trying to conceive on your own, then you can't realistically, you you can't biopsy every other month. It just doesn't make sense. So there's an element of faith that you have to take where you just roll with it and you test periodically. What periodically means can be different for everyone and you go from there. 
The other component of this question, I think, is if you are in the midst of fertility treatment, particularly if it's something that's very discreet and very controlled, like an embryo transfer, you do the biopsy the month ahead of time. And if it's clear, you rock and roll. And if it's not, you treat and you get it to be negative before you transfer. A hysteroscopy can be really helpful with this. Uh, the biopsies, like there's a couple different methods that you can go to to get this. But I think if you have a discrete pregnancy event, you do that. Now, that's really mostly helpful with IVF and an embryo transfer. That is less useful when you're doing IUIs just because there's a lower success rate. So it's more likely to take more of them and it's just not as practical to do. But I think that does help you to say, okay, let's cluster our treatment together. If we're going to do two or three IUI cycles, we test right beforehand. We do the treatments. If they work, fabulous. If they don't, then we decide we're going to bump up treatment and move on from there. But there's only so often that you can retest just because of the logistical and practical components of it. What do you think, Gabby? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. I mean, that's not something we commonly see. You know, like you said, if you're going to do an FET, you're doing IVF, then absolutely test right before, you know, you start your stimulation to make sure it's okay. If you're doing IUIs, I mean, you know, it's anybody's guess as to how often you should test. But, you know, every four to six months, I think would be reasonable to test and, you know, just hope it doesn't come back. But it's kind of an unusual circumstance. Maybe it's because we don't look at it. I don't think most of us probably don't routinely check for chronic endometritis, or at least I don't. But I think typically it's not something we commonly test for. So it's kind of hard to give you a real definitive timetable for when to test and how often. So... In looking at some of the studies, it it occurs in about 15% of women. So it's actually fairly common when you do start looking for it, more common than I think a lot of us realize. Which maybe suggests that maybe it's not a real entity that can cause an issue, or maybe it is and we just don't look for it. Who knows? Not having you as a patient and not understanding the entire, you know, scope of kind of how often had the endometritis and things like this is, you know, because we even use doxycycline, which is a common medication to treat endometritis. I use it occasionally when we're doing embryo transfers. That's part of one of my embryo transfer protocols. We know that people use doxycycline all the time for like skin disorders and things like this is maybe you might, and again, this is something to bring to your doctor. You might think about being on some sort of prophylactic dose until post-ovulation or something like this. I don't, I mean, that's just throwing an idea out there, but you know, like I said, I use it in some embryo transfer. So we do actually treat patients at least one time before they have an FET prophylactically with doxycycline. We don't do a biopsy because it's expensive and, you know, uncomfortable, but we do actually treat people routinely for that when they're going to have an FET, at least for their first one. Yeah. All right. So kind of segueing from that topic onto this one, we're we're going to talk about recurrent pregnancy loss today and miscarriages. And it's a big topic in our world, in part because there's not a huge amount of things that you can necessarily do and test for. There's kind of the, the handful of stuff that we look at. And how do you guys, when you have someone who comes to you and says, I have recurrent miscarriages, how do you approach those patients? What do you do? And really what classifies as a recurrent miscarriage? Because just one miscarriage is fairly common. But at what point do you say, all right, this is not normal. We should do something about this and we should look into this more. So prior to probably, I'm going to say probably seven to 10 years ago, historically, recurrent miscarriage was considered three clinically identifiable miscarriages, which meant that under strictest sense that you could 
absolutely diagnosed that pregnancy had happened and then a miscarriage occurred, oftentimes with ultrasound evidence that a pregnancy got to a certain point. Fortunately, those qualifications have loosened up a bit over time. And officially, now it's two miscarriages. And the reason is, is because if you think of the under 35 population, one in seven pregnancies is going to result in miscarriage. So baseline miscarriage is very, very common. However, once you've had two miscarriages, risk of miscarriage in the future is about 28%, whereas at three miscarriages, it's like 30 to 32%. And the decision was made, there's not a lot of difference between those two numbers. <laughs> and so we might as well be checking them out sooner than later. In my practice, and, and this may vary amongst our practices, I even consider biochemical pregnancies as miscarriages. So if you have a positive pregnancy test and then you end up with a negative pregnancy test, whether you were peeing on a stick or if you were getting HCG levels drawn, I personally consider those miscarriages and do an evaluation thereafter. What do you guys doing your practices. Yeah, same for me. I mean, it's nice like if you if you think you're pregnant, it would be really helpful to go to your doctor's office so we could actually have a number and really see what that number was and how high that number went. But yeah, if somebody comes to me and wants to do a recurrent pregnancy loss workup, I, I would I would definitely do it with two two biochemicals. What about you, Carrie? Yeah, I would tend the same way. I mean, I, I definitely prefer to see numbers if I can with an HCG levels, but you just don't always get that. Um, and I also, given the option, if there is confirmation with an ultrasound showing that it's in the uterus, so growing where it should be rather than stuck in a tube, recognizing, oops, I can't grow here and bailing. That said, I'm more inclined to just do the workup because it's not that painful of a workup in the sense of it's a bunch of blood tests and some uterine evaluation. The bigger concern that I tend to have is the insurance may or may not cover it. And it's it does happen to be a pretty expensive panel of blood to order if insurance is not cooperative. And so I know many times they will say, oh, you have to have three losses first, which I could pitch a high holy fit on insurance telling me how to practice medicine. In our state, sometimes they don't even cover it at all. It doesn't matter how many miscarriages you have, you pay out of pocket for it, unfortunately. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty quick to order it, but it's usually with the the explanation ahead of time of, you know, this may or may not be covered by your insurance and this is an expensive panel of blood work to do. Yeah, we even sometimes will kind of look to the insurance company, try and get some sort of cost estimate for patients. Cause I when I meet them the first time, I kind of talk or walk them through kind of what I would do in terms of a workup. And then we kind of get the cost estimate. And then once we kind of figure out what their cost would be, can decide if we want to do everything or if we want to do a few things first. And then if that doesn't work out, a few other things after that and, and kind of go from there. Along that note, let's talk about the evaluation, but the evaluation if money is not... If you have a money tree growing in your backyard and your insurance happens to be absolutely amazing in a permissive state and all of those things. So what's one of the labs you go to when you're doing this evaluation, Susan? So one of the labs that I would do is get chromosomes on both partners. And what's the name of that test? It's a karyotype. It's essentially a blood test 
pretty simple to do. We essentially get to find out if you have the right number of chromosomes for the situation. The nice thing is, is that 95% of the time it's normal. 5% of the time in recurrent pregnancy loss, we find out that one of the partners has a chromosomal abnormality. But the nice thing is, at least we know that that's something we can target with some of our treatments like IVF and that we can pick out embryos that are what we call chromosomally balanced. Obviously, if you have a chromosomal abnormality and you are standing here as my patient, obviously it works. (laughs) And we're essentially trying to find an embryo that's like you that may be either normal or balanced versus unbalanced, which would lead to miscarriage. So Susan, I have a question for you. Is that the first test you do or is it the last test you do if you're doing it in a stepwise fashion? I'm going to put this caveat in that in Texas, recurrent pregnancy loss is generally, I think, considered a medical evaluation, not Ah. a fertility evaluation. So my philosophy when it comes to recurrent pregnancy loss evaluations is understanding 50% of all recurrent pregnancy loss evaluations are going to find something, which also means 50% are not. In that 50% that finds something, 30% of people have multiple things going on. So in my practice, most of the time, unless I have a cash pay patient who's like, you know, I need to, you know, do this one piece at a time, that is not a situation I'm kind of forced into. Now, if I was in your situation, I would probably say it would be one of my later things to do because it's expensive and it's less common than somebody who's going to have a thyroid issue, a prolactin issue, a structural abnormality in their uterus. Well, and the reason I asked that question is exactly for exactly the point you made is because You know, some people would argue that that should be the very first test because if you find that there's a structural chromosomal abnormality, you got your answer there without having to do anything else. But on the flip side, if you're paying out of pocket, it's also the most expensive test. So I grapple with that all the time. Like, it should be my first test or should be my last test. I don't know. (laughs) So what do you order first, Abby? I usually honestly order lupus anticoagulant and anticardiolopin antibodies because those are abnormalities where your body kind of mistakes your normal body for something that's foreign. It kind of attacks the blood vessels between you and the placenta. If you have these antibodies, it's sort of like yourself is attacking self and making it more difficult for the pregnancy to continue. And so there's some pretty good data from, a, well, I will say pretty good data, but some data from the past that suggests that that, if you truly find out that somebody has those abnormalities have those antibodies that are attacking you and potentially attacking the pregnancy. If you treat patients in those situations with blood thinners, they tend to do better um, in pregnancy. So I always like to, you know, like chromosomes, if we find something wrong, we know what to do with that. If we find something wrong with this, we know what to do with this. A lot of the other things we start looking at, they're a lot more vague and it's kind of hard to know what to do if you find certain other abnormalities. So that would be one of the first tests I would do is lupus anticoagulant, and anticardiolopin antibodies. So I also get a lot of the really basic labs. And a lot of times these have been done before somebody has gotten to me. But if they haven't, I'm looking for diabetes. I'm looking for major abnormalities with thyroid, with prolactin, with just general health status, because some of these are more tightly related to miscarriage. So for example, an uncontrolled diabetic who has a hemoglobin A1C that's 8, 9, 12, 13 higher, those high ones that's very clearly associated with miscarriage. And so if you get their diabetes under control, you end up with a much better scenario. You know, if your thyroid is really out of whack, you can help 
mitigate things by getting that under control. And those are, they're not easy things to control, but they're very clearly medically defined. This is what you do. And this is how you go about doing it to get it under control, however long that takes. And then the other thing that I tend to do pretty early on is looking at a structural evaluation, taking a look inside the uterus, whether that is with a saline sonogram or a hysteroscopy to put a little camera inside and just directly visualize it. Because I want to see if there is something inside the uterus that's going to impair the ability of a pregnancy to implant and grow. What's inside the uterus that you'd be worried about? So polyps or fibroids that are good size that are directly hanging inside the uterus. Fibroids in particular can be buried within the wall. They can be pushing out into the abdominal cavity. So kind of on the outside wall of the cavity, or they can be on the inside wall hanging into that free space and essentially bouncing around playing ping pong with that embryo and not providing a really stable place for it to grow. So, and it's an easy thing to fix usually. In some ways, I think we're probably all the same mindset. It's almost kind of exciting when you find something like you do a saline sonogram and you're like, wow, you've got a fibroid smacked up in the middle of your cavity. And then I get really excited because I feel like if we get rid of that, they're going to do really well. And usually they do. I mean, that's one of those ones that you're like, yes, we did it. (laughs) There is nothing more exciting in especially the recurrent pregnancy loss workup when you find something clearly abnormal and you're like, I know what to do about that. I can fix that. I can help you with that. We tend to be fixers if you haven't figured that out. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I have a question for you guys. So this is not something that's part of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine workup. And you probably know what I'm going to say. Do you guys do a thrombophilia workup, which is a, a workup to look for clotting disorders? Or do you say, no, there's not a lot of data, so I don't do it? I don't do it unless there's a family history of clotting disorders or somebody who has a family history of blood clots or something that can be related to that. Because I mean, quite honestly, even with like factor five Leiden, isn't it estimated that 15% of the population is a carrier for factor five Leiden or for MTHFR? MTHFR is about 40%. That one's huge. Oh my goodness. There was a period there probably six or eight years ago where everybody did MTHFR. And now every doctor I know is like, don't do MTHFR. And when we're talking recurrent pregnancy loss, we are essentially talking about the recurrent pregnancy loss that happens most often in the first trimester. Now, when you start talking about pregnancy losses in the second and third trimester, honestly, that's a completely different episode. Yeah. Because that's that's a completely different ballgame. So. But MTHFR is probably in about 40% of people. And we used to think that may be a clotting disorder that could cause an issue. Most of us now, I, don't, I can't speak for you guys, but I don't check for it anymore at all. I used to, but I don't do that anymore because you had a conversation with you know 40% of your patients and it was a big talk. And most hematologists, they don't even worry about it anymore because I don't think it's a big deal at all. For me, a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation, a complete one, is essentially your fertility evaluation with a few things added on. And so with that being said, I do check ovarian reserve because number one, we need to know if time is more important than we think it is. We already think it's important, but is it even more important? And sometimes we, you know, you have somebody who has lost two, three, four pregnancies and you come find out they have a FSH of 17, which is quite high. You know, I I, mean, I, I think we've all had those. Yeah. I check fallopian tubes with an HSG. We know that hydrosalpinks are not pregnancy friendly, especially for those people with biochemical pregnancies. Hydrosalpinks are essentially swollen fallopian tubes. And we know that that fluid that isn't supposed to be in there can be embryo toxic. You know, the data is 
strongest in IVF pregnancies that we know that it can hurt those types of pregnancies, but I think it's something good to check out. Yeah. And to that end, and I know you guys have probably had a couple of patients like this before too. You know, sometimes if patients come to me and they've had two or more biochemical pregnancies, you start thinking, hmm, is this really recurrent pregnancy loss? Or is this really like an early ectopic pregnancy that this patient's had a couple of times and it's resolved itself? And so to that end, I think it's really important to check the tubes because, I mean, I've had a fair share of people who've shown up and finally we figured out when they finally had their third pregnancy and it was an ectopic pregnancy, you know, and realized that the tube was damaged, that both of the tubes were damaged, that these were actually really early ectopic pregnancies, tubal pregnancies, rather than being recurrent pregnancy loss. It's just the pregnancy didn't implant in the right place and it just, it stopped on its own without requiring any treatment. How do you approach counseling for your patients? Let's say you've done all these tests. You do your routine evaluation. You do the specialty labs. You do all the things. And they're in that 50% where there's nothing obvious for you to fix, to say you need a surgery, you need IVF because of a chromosomal abnormality, you need blah, blah, whatever, whatever it points to. How do you counsel these patients of, do you treat? Do you let it ride? Do you, what do you tell them? I think it goes back to those other factors that Susan talked about. You know, if this is a young patient and, you know, and emotionally they're okay trying again, I think there's nothing wrong with doing that. But when you do the workup, if you see that ovarian reserve is poor or maybe, you know, clearly they've gotten pregnant before, but maybe the sperm count's not great. If they have other things stacked against them, that's going to make it even harder for them to get pregnant again. Those are the ones that I would sort of push toward doing some sort of fertility treatment, either fairly minor fertility treatment or if they're older, you know, and their ovarian reserve is poor, maybe even IVF. When I counsel, what I generally do is I essentially say there is a range of things that we can do. What we know is that if you keep trying on your own, most people are eventually going to be successful. I can't tell you if you chose that path, if that's going to be the next pregnancy or five pregnancies down the road. And that is a very personal, very emotional um, decision to make that the patient and her partner are going to have to make together. You know, I talk about expectant management. You can go try on your own for whatever time period you think is appropriate. And again, depending on age, you know, maybe that's three months, maybe that's six months. All of these things are going to be very tailor-made to each individual, but letting us know as soon as you're pregnant so that we can do early monitoring, we can get those early hormone levels, we can check your progesterone, we can check your thyroid hormone early in pregnancy when those thyroid hormone needs are skyrocketing and, and making sure everything's as perfect as we can make it. Sometimes I offer things that just help you get pregnant a little bit faster because oftentimes our patients not only have recurrent pregnancy loss, but they also have secondary infertility. So obviously they've conceived before, but they haven't been able to hold on to the pregnancy. But sometimes these pregnancy losses are years apart <laughs> or it's been years since they've had a pregnancy. And sometimes people just want a little boost, even without a diagnosis of infertility of, you know, we've been trying, we've had two, three, four losses and, you know, time isn't our friend. We would like something that's going to boost up our chances a little bit without being too risky and moving from there. And then there's the option of things like IVF, where we can actually test the embryos and know if an embryo is chromosomally normal. As we know, most miscarriages in that unexplained are going to be because an embryo is not developing correctly. Now, you can have structural abnormalities and you can have chromosomal abnormalities. 
And what we can address are those chromosomal abnormalities and be able to put a chromosomally normal embryo into your uterus, thereby increasing your chances, not completely eliminating the chances of a miscarriage, but definitely increasing the chances of success. And it's one of those times that I do find it's a tough time for patients to make decisions. And I completely understand it. And it's one of those times where making a choice, realizing it's not a wrong choice, it's whatever feels the best to you is what's going to be the right choice. Because what you need to do is what's specific for the two of you. And so it's always good in our field when we're able to give you choices because there are sometimes that we aren't able to give people choices and we're like, if you wanted to get pregnant, you need to do blank. Um, So if you're not given choices, kind of hone in on that. But if we're given choices, that in itself is kind of a blessing. Like you said, this is really emotional. And this was really brought home to me. I mean, it's brought home to me, unfortunately, often in my patient population. But I had a family member recently who found out she got pregnant and found out that she miscarried. And it's just, it's really devastating for the whole family. It was devastating for she and her husband. And it's just really sad. And, you know, with recurrent pregnancy loss, you're not talking about one loss, you're talking about two losses or three losses. And sometimes just emotionally, it's just hard for you to keep moving forward, even if you're young and we think your prognosis is good. And so, you know, that would be your argument to move more aggressively to something that can get you pregnant more quickly to prevent you from having to keep going through all these losses, both emotionally and physically. One of probably the most important statements that I think we make to someone who's had recurrent pregnancy losses, this is not your fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You cannot control this. This is not your fault. And knowing that and internalizing that is, is really helpful because all of the testing that we're talking about doing and whether or not we do treatment and the pros and cons of, you know, are you someone who gets pregnant every other month, but can't keep it? And your last pregnancy was three months ago versus someone who has had two losses, the most recent one five years ago with no pregnancy in between time. Like those are some of the nuances that inform do we treat and how aggressively do we treat? But one of the biggest things that this involves is just the pure stamina of try again. Because when you stop trying, doesn't matter what we do, you've stopped trying. So this is not your fault. It's a really important component of this. Yeah. Resilience is definitely a very important characteristic really for all of our patients. It's just, it's hard to be resilient, but that's the people I think we all agree that get pregnant are the ones that just keep bouncing back going, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? You know, and it's hard, it's hard to do, but that's a characteristic that's really helpful for you, certainly with fertility treatments. Yeah. All right. So good episode. Thank you, ladies. To our audience, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Um, We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a like or a follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sunsensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions are going to be answered on the podcast anonymously. As you know, because we answer lots of those for our Ask the Doc segment or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.